We are finishing up our two-part series on sacred gender. Uh, we wish we could spend more time on this. Uh, one way that we can help is there are some resources in the Resource Center. I think we put like four books out there that are going to dive deeper into this topic of manhood and womanhood biblically. Uh, So if you uh, want to do that, I encourage you to check that out. Next week, come early uh, or at least on time. Uh, Urbana's going to be down with us, and we look forward to celebrating uh, what God has done in these past 10 years. But today, uh, we're talking about womanhood, and I'm an expert. Uh, (coughs) No, welcome to my last message. This will be good. We're going to... We're going to go out swinging. I mean, you got a man talking about what it means to be a woman. What could go wrong? This is going to be great. Uh, but no, it's not me just talking about it. We told you last week, like, we're Bible people. Uh, we go to God's Word. We want to see what God's Word has to say about these things, and that's what we're going to do uh, today. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be at several different places Uh, But if you want to get a head start, the first place we're going to go, just like last week, is Genesis 2, where we can look at uh, what we can learn from the beginning. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 2. Um, While you're turning there, let's just kind of dive into this topic. Um, Women have a history of being kind of second-class citizens uh, throughout the world. Uh, There's been a fight to be seen, to be treated fairly, to vote, to own property, uh, to have equal rights. Um, but the fight to, um, which, which is good and a godly pursuit, um, the pushback may be that the fight to be equal to men at times can seem like the fight to be like a man and kind of a downplaying of distinctions. Um, this idea of like anything a man can do, a woman should be able to do. And it's like, is that even the right goal? Um, or do we kind of do away with unique design and distinctions and that? But you see this kind of approach that, Movement of like, well, men don't have to worry about getting pregnant, so women shouldn't have to worry about getting pregnant. You know, there's always these men are action heroes all the time. We need more women action heroes. So you see more movies with women beating people up. Um, Engineering is dominated by males, so we need more female engineers. The military is dominated by males, so we need more female Marines. It's like, is that what equality is about? Like, is that what's wrong with our world? We just need more female oil riggers? Like, that's going to make the world a better place? Like, is that the right pursuit? And sometimes the pursuit for equality can seem like the pursuit to just be the same. And when you do away with unique distinctions between men and women, you're left with questions like, well, what is a woman? And guys, that's a real, actual question that our culture is wrestling with. What does it mean to be a woman? And you're witnessing this kind of conclusion or or collision happening between feminism, which is kind of a movement to empower women in society, and transgenderism, which is kind of blurring the lines of what it means to be a woman. So on one hand, you can have these crushing expectations that you can be it all and you can do it all. You can be the boss CEO and the great wife and the great mom, and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it all. You can't do it all. Like, nobody can. Nobody was designed to do it all. But yet on the other side, anybody who wants to be a woman can just identify as a woman. And you might ask, like, well, how do you identify as a woman? Put on makeup, put on a dress, get female body parts with the help of a doctor. But if that's what it means to be a woman and you just kind of reduce it down to body parts and clothing... 
you end up objectifying women as sex objects. And listen, there is more to your femininity than your figure, than your clothing. But what is it? Like if a woman has a double mastectomy, that doesn't make her less of a woman. If a woman can't have a baby, that doesn't make her less of a woman. But with all this controversy and confusion, and if it's not just those things, what is it? What does it mean to be a woman? And we said last week, like both men and women are created in the image of God and have equal value, dignity, and worth. But distinguishing or uh, kind of doing away with distinctions isn't biblical or helpful. In fact, it leads to kind of more confusion and overcompensations. Here's the premise that we started off with last week. And we said, listen, this is like foundational for us. And if you disagree with us here, you're going to be super frustrated the rest of the time. But if you could like at least kind of agree with this statement, we have kind of a foundation to build upon. And what we said was, we believe that men and women were created differently on purpose. Like if you just go to a starting place, this, this is our starting place. We believe that men and women were created by God. God is our creator. He, he made us. And he made us different. Men and women are different. And it's deeper than just biology. We're in our nature, like we are different. And we're different on purpose. Like I didn't make Adam and Eve and be like, whoa, one's not like the other. Like, no, it's like I did that. That's on purpose. And I would add to that that men and women are created differently on purpose by a good God. Like a God who is good He knows what he's doing. He knows more than we do. And he cares about the thriving of his creation. So what we want to look at this morning is what was the purpose behind God creating women? Or or put it this way. What does it mean to be a woman biblically, not just biologically? You guys with me? Okay, everybody's just like, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. (laughs) Let's just do this. All right. What does it mean to be a woman biblically, not just biologically? And I'm going to give you a statement that I think captures a unique calling towards women in Scripture. And then we're going to kind of look at the different phrases in the statement. And we're going to go to the Bible to say, like, okay, where do we, where do we get this at? Last week, when we talk, looked at biblical manhood, we said biblical manhood is embracing the responsibility to lead, provide, and protect. This week, when we look at biblical womanhood, we're saying it is embracing the inclination to help men lead in godliness, other women live in godliness, while modeling godliness. Okay? It's embracing the inclination to help men lead in godliness, other women live in godliness, while modeling godliness. Now, stay with me, okay? If you could just kind of commit to, like, staying through the whole service... That'll be a win, okay? But at least let me like unpack some of this. Because anytime you start talking about roles, I know like guards go up and there's like you're a little bit on edge because who are you to tell me what I can and can't do and I can do anything and my mom told me I can fly. You can't fly, okay, right? But you get this idea in society, like I can do whatever I want. We kind of self-autonomy, kind of authority. And sometimes for preachers, the temptation is to try to make this less offensive, it's like, well, in their culture, it was this, and in the Greek, and, and if you read every fifth word, then it's a lot easier to digest, and it's like, listen, I'm, not, I'm just going to shoot it straight with you. I'll try to teach the Bible as best I can, but let me tell you, it's offensive. Like, it is. 
Like from the lenses that we look at as like modern, enlightened, self-autonomy people, like we're going to look at some of the things scripture says, like I don't like that. Like this, this is hard. It's difficult. But what if the problem is not a design problem? What if it's a lens problem? Like what if God's design of making men and women differently on purpose is actually a beautiful wonderful thing for the thriving of everybody. But the lens that we look at it from our fallen selves and our prideful and our self-centeredness, we really struggle with and that's where we're offended from. Because I think one of the tension points is we, we look to find value, fulfillment, and identity in our roles or what we do. But hear me now, you don't find fulfillment in roles. You find service in roles. You find Identity and value in Christ. Now, both men and women were made in the image of God. And there was ways in which men were made to uniquely image God. And there were ways that women were made to uniquely image God. But hear me, church. I love you. Hear me this. The point is not for you to live out your dreams. The point is for you to live out God's design. And here's the good news. God's design is better than your dreams. Like he is a wise God who knows what he's doing and he did some really amazing stuff on purpose. So this is what we want to look into. We want to say, okay, what, let's better understand what does it mean to be a man biblically and what does it mean to be a woman biblically. So let's get into this. We're going to kind of take that statement by chunks and jump right in. With the first one is biblical womanhood is embracing the inclination to help. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Here's what he says. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, um, there is some James Brown theology happening in Genesis 2. It is a man's world. In a sense, it's like God made Adam and he said, work it, keep it, cultivate it, right? This is like, I've tasked you with this, name the animals. This is the man's world, but it would not be nothing without a woman or a girl. Because he looks at this creation and says, this isn't good. This isn't really going to take off. This isn't going to be what I planned it to be. You need a helper. And there's a clear call or a clear intention in the creation of Eve to make a helper. Now we hear that word helper and from our context we kind of cringe. It's like, ah, second class citizen, like what does that mean? Helper, I don't know if I like that. But to the original audience this would be a very dignifying statement. He's saying, hey, don't treat women as property. Don't brush them to the side like they have nothing to offer in value. They are a gift to to be a help. Like you are to treasure them. They are a gift from God and they are meant to help you. So don't push them aside. But there are a couple of ways that we can look at this idea of what it means to be a helper. Because when you think of helper, you can think of like a maid or a butler or a servant. They're offering help. Or you can think of a hero. 
who comes in and rescues and provides help. Like, let's say Rudy, my youngest daughter, is at home and a bookshelf falls on top of her and she's trapped and she can't get out with the bookshelf. I can come and help. I can come and lift that bookshelf off and pull her out and I helped her. I rescued her out of this. I provided help for something she couldn't do. And let's say that same day, I say, Rudy, dust yourself off. Stop crying. We got yard work to do, right? We're going to go out to the yard and we're going to, you're going to help your dad do some yard work. You're going to do what I tell you to do and you're going to provide help. Those are two different ways help is applied that are very different. God is often referred to as a helper of Israel. Psalm 121, where does our help come from? We want to complete that? The Lord. The help comes from the Lord, right? He is the helper of Israel. He, 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 come, like, he doesn't take orders from us. Like, he's not our assistant, but he comes and rescues us. We're dead in our sins. We can't save ourselves. He comes and helps. He provides assistance. He comes as our helper, our rescuer. But even though we're not in charge of God, he's not our assistant. We don't just tell him what to do. When Christ came, he came not just to be served, but to what? To serve. And he tells, hey, anything, ask, ask, like I'm here, ask. So in one sense, Jesus is the hero and the servant. Okay, so let's go back to this story. What what does it mean to be a helper? Who is Eve? And it's like, well, in one sense, kind of both. Because God looks at Adam and it's like, this isn't good for you to be alone. Like you are going to be incapable of accomplishing the task that I put before you by yourself. You need somebody to come in and provide help um, in order to do something you can't do. But on the other hand, this was a task given to Adam saying like, you're in charge of this. This is a, you're supposed to work. You're supposed to keep it. Here's somebody to help you. So it's, there's a little sense of like, well, Eve is providing both like a kind of a rescue type help of saying, you can't do this by yourself, but also Adam's in charge and I'm here to help. And it says in the text that Eve is a suitable helper. It's like, well, in contrast to what? All the animals. You remember how that played out? Like, I haven't found a helper suitable for Adam. So what does God do? Let's parade all the animals by. Let's see if we can find one. And none was found that was suitable for Adam. So God makes Eve. And Eve is a suitable helper in a way that the animals were not a suitable helper. You're like, well, what, do you, what does that look like? It's Because the animals could help. Like if you're supposed to garden, right? Horses can plow. They can help with the garden. They can cultivate the ground. Like he can teach a horse to haul things. He can tell a horse to go and to stop and to turn. But a horse is never going to stop, turn around and say, hey, Adam, what if we did it this way? I think this would be better, right? He's not able to provide that level of camaraderie, collaboration that Adam needed. Eve is a suitable helper, not just for procreation, but also collaboration in this task of carrying out the commands of God. So Adam is not this superior genius and he gets a dumb trainee. That's not the story. That's not the narrative. In fact, I'll just be really honest with you guys. Marcy is smarter than I am. None of you are writing that down. She is. <laughs> I didn't know. Like, I think the other day I was, I was saying, how do you spell waffle? And she was like, sound it out. <laughs> and I, I was like, wall, W-A-L, wall, wall. It's like, I'm like I can't get it. It's, not, it's still the squiggly line. Um, it's like, wow, you didn't know how to spell waffle. And you were taking notes while I talk. So that's your problem. <laughs> but... It's not an intelligence thing. Like, 
I don't think you'll ever fully understand how much you benefit from the way Marcy helps me. It's not an inferiority thing. It's not a, an inferiority thing. It's about design and imaging God in unique ways and how we relate to each other. And Eve came in and she filled what was missing. And it's more complimentary to be the help than the one getting help. But listen, being manipulative or controlling or undermining or demeaning, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. And being just kind of uh, stepping aside, getting walked on, never speaking up, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. God commissioned Eve. You need to help him. That's why I put you here. Like, he needs your help. You need to be active and proactive in providing help. Now, the reason we say embrace the inclination to help is because it's not something to be forced upon you, but rather a disposition you willingly take. I'm here to help. I'm here to make things better. I'm here to provide assistance. Now, there are two unique areas in which women are called to help in Scripture and one unique way in which women are called to help. And we're going to look at those two areas and we're going to look at that unique way. And the first area is the inclination to help men lead in godliness. Now, <clears throat> last week we looked at the call on man to provide godly leadership. And here we see Eve was created to be a helper. And here's the next phrase, fit for him. Now, just so you don't feel like I'm making that up, if you go back, look at verse 18. Uh, the Lord God said, it is not good for man should be alone. I will, ta- I will make him a helper, what? Fit for him. And then down in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. What? Fit for him. Yeah. He was like, you're, you're meant to be a helper fit for him. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to make you somebody. She's going to be great at gardening. Like, she's going to be a real good help in this area. Like, it's like, no, she's going to be a great helper for you. Like, she's there to be fit with you, to go together with you, to provide assistance and help for you. And Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, and he was tasked with working it. And Eve was formed from Adam and tasked with helping him. And specifically, helping him uh, to glorify God by carrying out God's commands. So Adam was put there. He's like, okay, together you're going to multiply. You're going to fill the earth. You're going to work the ground. You're going to subdue it. Uh, You're going to have dominion over it. Here's a helper. But... You need to help him execute these commands. You need to carry out these tasks that I've given you. And as you are obedient to what I've called you to, you bring glory to me. And Adam, you're supposed to lead out in this. And Eve, you're supposed to help in this. But this is what you're supposed to do. So stay with me here. This is important. Listen, it is not help him do whatever he wants to do. No. It is help him do what I want him to do. You get that? He's not telling Eve, hey, help Adam do whatever Adam wants to do. It's no, Eve, help Adam do what I want him to do. Be obedient to what I've called him to do. As in, if you're helping and it's not godly, you ain't helping. But if you're helping and it is godly, you're fulfilling what I've called you to do. Now, what is clear throughout scripture are that women are huge influencers before they even got paid, right? Huge influencers. Now, we don't have time to kind of like march through all of Scripture to kind of point this out, but let me just kind of give you some highlights. Rahab hid the spies. Deborah strengthened the resolve of Barak. Ruth convinced Boaz to allow her to come under his protection. Um, Abigail dealt kindly with David while pleading for the forgiveness of her foolish husband. 
Esther risked her life and intervened to direct her husband to the true threat in his kingdom. And then on the other side, Eve led Adam to disobey. Jezebel led Ahab uh, into greater sin. Delilah tricked Samson. Herodias' daughter convinced Herod to behead John the Baptist. And for good or bad, by design, there is powerful influence that women have. And it is meant to help men do godly things, not ungodly things. Which means helping isn't just helping. Helping, in a biblical sense, is stewardship. Like I put you here with this task to help godliness flourish. It's a responsibility. It's a responsibility. And ladies, understand the power of influence you have. Your attitude, your demeanor, your support is huge in shaping the culture of your home or your workplace or wherever you find yourself. And your um, gossip or undermining or control can be huge in destroying your home or your workplace or wherever you find yourself. Acknowledge the power of your influence. In fact, Scripture addressing a man tells a man, it is better to live on the corner of your roof than in the house with a quarrelsome wife. This is the word of God saying, hey, this is what Scripture tells a man. This woman has so much influence. If she is quarrelsome and difficult, here's my advice. Just move to the roof. In fact, get as close to the edge as possible. Like that's, That's what the word of God is saying. Because you've got to acknowledge the influence and power in that. Listen, woman was made from the side of Adam, his rib. Right under his arm, a sense of protection and closeness. Close to his heart, a sense of influence and intimacy. That is a very powerful position to be in. Your words are weighty. Listen, I, I've taught on this two, maybe three times in roughly 25 years of ministry. I guarantee somebody's going to come down and try to rip me a new one for being a sexist guy today. Let me tell you, I'm going to sleep well tonight. But if my wife says something to me that kind of like challenges, I'm like laying up at night questioning all my decisions. Like, oh, what did I do? Like, and somebody's like, well, you need to kind of be tougher skin to your wife. Like, no, that's intimacy. That, her, way, her words matter. That's, way, that's, that's part of our relationship. Like there is stewardship in your influence. You get me? You know what I'm saying? All right, well, I said it, so here we go. Uh, <laughs> number two, embracing the inclination to help other women live in godliness. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, it says this. Older women. So it's going to address older women and younger women. Women are specifically getting addressed in this text. Older women... I'll let you decide who that applies to. Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Again, probably not going to see that on a coffee mug, but there it is in Scripture. So what does it mean? Now, sometimes there's this kind of attitude among women in churches like, we don't want to talk about domestic things. Let's go deep. Let's go deep in the Bible. Let's study the Bible. Let's understand theology. And I would say, yes, amen. Be great students of the word. Study theology. Sign up for VST. Know the word of God. That's just not what this text is talking about. 
This text isn't like, find a woman who can break down soteriology. This is like, no, find a woman who can instruct you in practical godliness that applies to being a woman. Like, to love your husbands, to to love your children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive, like, those kind of practical instructions. Now, sometimes when this passage is read, it comes with a disclaimer of saying, now, this doesn't mean that it's wrong for a woman to work outside the home. And I would say, I agree with that. This isn't prohibiting a woman from working outside the home. But when you study the Bible, you can't just say what it doesn't say. You also have to say, well, what does it say? And there's a clear call to say women have a special ministry in the home to their husband and their children. Like it is a call in scripture and it's in your nature and design more than just biology. But you got to wonder like, what does it mean that God made a woman to carry a child and to feed a child? I learned the other day that uh, women's body temperature can adjust either uh, warm or cool a child. But men only heat things up. I was like, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Right. But there's like differences in design and nature. And it's like, this is on purpose. And there is a special ministry women have to their husbands and their children. And some of you hear this and you might be offended. You're like, Jake, you just say you can be barefoot and pregnant at home. It's like, I didn't say that. Okay. I didn't say that. I understand this is kind of a loaded conversation and people's trigger fingers are happy. I didn't say that. I'm just saying there is a clear call in scripture that women have a special ministry, a special ministry in their home. Now, Maybe, maybe it sounds degrading because there's been a downplaying of the family and society. Like, like real work is out there. Real work is what you get paid for. Right? And even moms that work outside the home, when you ask, what do you do? They'll say, like, well, I work in HR, and then I have three kids. You don't hear them say, like, I'm raising three kids, and I happen to work in HR. Or if you talk to a, a mom who doesn't work outside the home and you ask what do they do, they may say, well, I'm just a mom. Can we please stop putting just before motherhood? Please. Raising kids that love Jesus is one of the most world-changing things you can do. You hear me? Raising kids that love Jesus is one of the most world-changing things you can do. And don't let society tell you where value and worth is found. Let the Bible say that. But let's get back to the point. What is the main instruction in this text? What's the main kind of command given in this text? Older women teach younger women how to be godly women. That's the main command that Paul's given. Older women teach younger women how to be godly women. So there's an inclination to help, not just men lead in godliness, but other women to live in godliness. So let me just kind of issue a challenge on this one. Older women. Again, I'll let you decide who that is. Older women. Get in the game. Get in the game. You have so much to offer. But you need to take initiative and pursue younger women and build relationships and encourage and invest. You are called to it in Scripture. Get in the game. Younger women, stop idolizing the wrong things. Stop idolizing the wrong things. All these influencers that you follow on social media, they're often young, beautiful, and wealthy, and who you follow shows what you treasure. And what you really want is to be young, beautiful, and wealthy. And that is a poor role model. And when you think of who your role model and your life coach is, 
It shouldn't be some 28-year-old still trying to figure out how to raise a toddler who spends way too much time on Instagram and $100 yoga pants telling you how to make kale chips. Right? No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I know it's like, hey, we can laugh at this, but I'm serious. Stop idolizing the wrong things. Find a woman who's been married for decades and their husband adores them, who has raised children that love Jesus, who has lines on their face that says they have laughed and cried a lot in life. Like, find those type of role models. And stop being competitive with one another. There's a competition among women. It's like, who's the prettiest and who's the most successful and who has the best kids and who has the nicest house? And there's this competitive, like, crushing weight of perfectionism that women put on themselves and other women. It's killing you. Stop it. And women can be cruel. Girls can be just cruel. Like, I've raised a boy and two girls. And usually the boy thing is like, well, Billy punched Tommy at recess. Well, the next day they're best friends. But girls, it's like, we're going to form a coup and we're going to like divide the friends and we're going to find the weaknesses and we're going to take you out over time and you're just going to crush you. Like, women, girls can be nasty. Got to stop being competitive. Uh, There's a recent study that said that women spend way more time checking out each other than the opposite sex. Way more time checking out each other than the opposite sex. Because there's this this default into comparison and and competition. It's like, who are you spending hours at the gym for? Who are you trying to doll up for? Who are you trying to be all pretty and sexy for? Don't say your husband, because he don't care that much. (laughs) Like, you're trying to be better than Nancy in accounting. Like, that's where it's at. And there's this, like, spirit of competition. Like, and it's killing you. Like, ladies, like, let go of the competition. It just shows that you value the wrong things. Like, be for one another in godliness. And the last thing is the way that you go about your influence. Whether it's helping men lead in godliness or helping other women live in godliness is that you model godliness. Now, both men and women are called to model godliness. That's not unique But you can't ignore that when Scripture addresses women, there's a specific type of character that godly women are called to. Even like in this passage in Timothy, you see it. It says, older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slave to much wine. Like, it's first calling attention to character. Like, character matters. It's part of the influence. The most famous uh, depiction of of a godly woman is what? You want to take a guess? Proverbs 31, right? Every women's ministry, it's Proverbs 31 ministry. The problem is that wasn't written to women. It was a mother addressing a young son and what to look for. And what she says is find a woman who's trustworthy, hardworking, strong, not a worrier, not a worrier, not a worrier, wise, (laughs) kind, caring, compassionate. She contributes to the provision of her home. Her kids love her. And you read that, or women can read that, and they can just be crushed. Like, she sounds like superwoman. Like, I don't know if anybody can live up to that. It's helpful to know that the descriptions in Proverbs 31 are all past tense. And what I mean by that is it's not that she was all these things all the time her whole life. But when you look back at her life, there were seasons where all these traits got displayed in how she lived. But the defining trait which the title is the title of the section, is that she fears the Lord. And what's unique is the fear of the Lord is put in contrast to charm and beauty. Look at verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. 
But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You know, oftentimes girls are told, hey, if a guy is only into your looks, move on. And I would say, amen. Amen. But since this wasn't really written to girls, but a mother addressing her son, let me tell you this. Guys, if she has to dress in such a way to get attention and finds her value in her looks, run. Run. If the Lord is not enough for her, you won't be either. And she will crush you with her insecurities. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now let's be honest. There is a reason that scripture often addresses women in appearance. Do you remember Adam's response when he first saw Eve? Yeah, he broke into poetry. Like it was, it, he was drawn to her. There was an attraction by design on purpose. But in a fallen world, men can objectify women in pursuit of their own sexual lust. And women can objectify themselves in pursuit of attention, value, and power. And you know that you can wear some things to get more attention than if you wore other things. But godliness is being called out of that. It's being above it. In fact, look at Proverbs 31 verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing. You know what I put on? This is what I wear. This is what people see and know of me, my my dignity and my strength. And she laughs at the time to come. Do you know what that means? Getting old is just something she laughs at. But it's hard, right, to get old. and Nobody's, nobody's despite the clothing store, you know, forever 21, nobody's 21 forever, right? I want to open up a clothing store right next to it that says, not 21 anymore, okay? We need to do that. But listen, beauty fades. Extra, it's vain. It fades. Things, you know, you, you can't keep up with that. But there is a godliness that just laughs at getting old. They don't put their value in there. So, so let me show you a, a couple passages. This is uh, Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 and 10. It says this. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, there's two negative directives and a positive directive in this. And what, what he's saying is women are to dress with modesty and self-control. It's, it's a refrain from sensuality in your clothing. He's saying when you get dressed, your goal should not be to be sexy, that's not a compliment that we should give each other. That's not the goal. Your, your goal should not be to draw attention to certain body parts. That should not be the goal of a godly woman when it comes to clothing. Number two, it says, don't dress with braided hair or gold, pearls, expensive clothing. Now, it's not into those details, but he's saying don't, don't uh, flaunt wealth in how you dress. Don't try to communicate your, your value with your wardrobe. And then the positive one, dress with good works. It's like you want people should notice about you, not your figure, not your wealth, your character, your godliness, your strength, your dignity. Or here's another one, just so you feel like, well, he's making that up. No, it comes up again. This is First Peter three. It says this: Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. It's the same kind of call here. It's like, don't use clothing or your body to communicate your value, your worth, or your dignity. Use your character. Then he goes on to say this. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. There it is. 
There is a beauty that does not fade. It does not go away when you age. It's not tied to how smooth your skin is. Right? There's an imperishable beauty, and it's a gentle and quiet spirit. Think of like a serene or tranquil, like a pond or a lake in the morning when there's no waves. It's just at peace. It says there is a beauty in that. And then he goes on, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. And that's kind of an insight into the window of her heart. Here's who she seeks to please the most, God. When she gets dressed, I want to please God. How she behaves, I want to please God. When she's out and about working, I want to please God. Like there is a desire to first please God. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. There it is. That's the call. Holy women. The word holy means to be set apart. So so ladies of Veritas, are you willing to be different than everybody else in this world? Are you willing to shop different, dress different, act different, behave different? Are you willing to be set apart, even to step off this competition? Well, then they're doing it, and they'll get ahead, and they'll get the attention, and they'll get the promotion. Are you willing to be like, yeah, I don't play that game. I don't play that game. Like, I'm seeking to please God. Are you willing to be set apart for that? He goes on, he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I'd love to have time to go into that because there's only one time she does that. And it's kind of, uh, not in jest, but not formal. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Anything that is frightening. So this isn't talking about weak, kind of passive, full of worry type of women. He's talking about women who aren't afraid of anything that's frightening. Like frightening stuff that other people are afraid of. He's like, not these women. They're not afraid of anything. And again, as a dad of two daughters, like that's who I want to raise. Like you don't have to dress to get the eyes of a boy. You're going to be full of good works. You need to be somebody who's not afraid of anything. Like, well, how? How are they going to turn out that way? How, how did these women live like that? Go back to the verse 5. It says, for this is how the holy women who what? Who what? Hoped in God. Hoped in God. Like how can you, how can you like... Not worry about getting all their attention. Oh, it's because I hope in God. I mean, how can you be full of good works? Because I hope in God. How can you not be afraid of anything? Aren't you afraid that they may think less of you? Aren't you afraid that this may happen? Aren't you afraid that you won't get married? Aren't you afraid? No, 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 no. I hope in God. And church, how cool would it be if that was the reputation of the women of Veritas Church? They just clothe themselves in good works. I mean, it's... They dress differently. They're not out to get people's eyes. They're out to please God first and foremost. They're for each other and not in competition with one another. And they're not afraid of anything. And they hope in God. Do you know the difference that would make in your home and in this church? If you embrace the inclination to help Men lead in godliness? Like you are an advocate for godliness and a standard. And you had an inclination to help other women live in godliness? You didn't look at them as competition, but sisters in Christ? And you just modeled godliness in your life? You know the difference that would make? And guys, do you know who best displayed commitment to good works? 
was not wrapped up in appearance. In fact, he had no beauty that we should desire him. Was a servant with submissive attitude. Was gentle and lowly in spirit. Wasn't afraid of anything and sought most to please God, his father. Jesus. Listen, it is a high calling to be a woman. To be a biblical woman. And you would make a world of difference by embracing it. Let's pray. Father, it feels like we're taught to be our own authority and do whatever we want and determine right from wrong from our own hearts and heads. And when Scripture, your word, pushes back against that, calls us to something, our guard can go up. And may prick at things we idolize. And if we struggle in trusting you, that you know what's best, you know what's best for our good, for our thriving, I pray as we turn our attention to the cross and your sacrifice, that your body was pierced, your blood was shed, and in that act you displayed your love for us. As we turn our attention to that, I pray our response is, you are somebody who can be trusted, that you care for us, that your ways are higher than our ways, that you are for our thriving, and we would bring all of life under you. And I pray, when, when I think about what it means to be a biblical woman, I'm so thankful that so many women in this church has come to mind that model this day in and day out. I pray that you would increase it among our number for your glory. Pray in your name. Amen.